Good morning. My name is Rand Eberhard. I work in congregational care, and uh, I'm glad to be here this morning. And this, in fact, uh, marks the very day that Jenny and my family and I started uh, here at the church a year ago today. So we're really thankful to be here and have this this blessing to to stand on the authority of Scripture and, and preach the Word. And I'm glad that you decided to get up and be here with us this morning. Uh, we're going to read in Romans 14. Um, to read for us the text. It's in the, in the Bible in front of you in the pew is 1127 is the page number. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than the other, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the other, one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, and he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother, or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but is unclean for any one who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one 
who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you have invited each of us to consider our, per, our part in eternity. Thank you that your word gives clarity to your voice. Your word calls us back to your heart that we would be reconciled, that we would be set free from ourselves, free from the pressures of the world, and free from the fear of failure, that we can rest in Christ knowing that by your blood... We are redeemed, we've been purchased, and we are worth the Son in the eyes of the Father. Let us value that, the deepest level of our hearts. Thank you for shaping our faith, our community, and let us consider how we might contribute to that. In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh... A quote that I've used for a number of years that I heard somewhere is this. The happiest, most productive people are those with clarity of purpose. A clarity of purpose that goes beyond circumstances is one that is certainly uh, shaped in the Word of God. And when we have a clarity of the Word, we have a clarity of purpose. And to understand what God is saying in this text and all other scriptures is to understand that the gospel is infused in the entirety of Scripture, not just a, a part that seems a bit less interesting or a bit less informative or a part that is repetitive, but the gospel of peace is infused in the entirety of God's Word. And our heart, when our heart's purpose is in, in alignment with the Father's will, there is a happiness and there is a peace and there is a clarity that goes beyond circumstances as said. So when life comes against us, when a brother or a, a, a person in the body of Christ or in the community comes against what God wants for us, the tendency is to resist a confrontation, to resist, to receive a correction as rejection. But instead, God gives us clarity in this text that we are to be humble before the Lord without judgment, recognizing that the vehicle of God's word can come in many different forms. Often we look for somebody that looks like us, talks like us, um, has the right to come up and impart a word into our, our perspective. But the truth is, the word can come from very unexpected sources. So are we in alignment with the will of the Father? And when we are, as the text says, we find righteousness is a byproduct, the overflow of the heart, a want to uh, have to becomes a want to. The perception that the Bible says, well, I have to do that to be loved. Instead, we look at the love of God that transcends our understanding and have to becomes want to. There's a passion that takes root in our hearts that says, whatever happens, I'm certain to walk in obedience and righteousness to bring glory to the Father, and that's kingdom living. That's what we're called to. So satisfaction is the knowledge that we have gained the right type of life and we can be satisfied in all things knowing that regardless of what happens, we have gained the right type of life, a kingdom life, holding a kingdom ethic over our, our decision-making, holding a, a perspective as we look onto the life of the other and say, 
he is fearful, fearfully, she is fearfully and wonderfully made just like me. And I have no more of a right to stand before the judgment seat than they do. But together in Christ, we stand there unified as brothers and sisters, knowing that we've all been forgiven an incredible amount. If we take that seriously, then it frames in the perspective of sin, understanding that there is no soul rest. There is no rest and contentment and satisfaction and peace where there is an ongoing sin in life. There's no soul rest. Choice is where sin dwells, where we hinge on the decision to act for or against the kingdom of God, the purpose of Jesus Christ and the gospel. When we choose self, we place ourselves at the center of our will instead of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that shapes our, our thoughts, our feelings, our emotions, our ambitions, and our social context. John Calvin said, The surest destruction of man is to obey himself. People become opposition instead of opportunity in this type of perspective of uh, the self-will. We, we see people that come against our, our social norms or our, our church's traditions or the word of God. We see them as not having measured up, not having being worth the investment or the, the interest of the churchgoer. But that's not what Jesus Christ came to live and die for. The Holy Spirit has come to make Jesus Christ the king of your life and mine. And that looks like humility. That looks like being chosen as a royal priesthood in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. A chosen people, a holy nation, and God's special possession. This is not earned, this is received by faith. And it's a faith that says, Lord, come into my life, sit on the throne of my life, and help me to surrender my will, my perception of other people, the truth that comes at me in many forms, but more clearly and more uh, accurately in the Scripture above all things, that we can measure a word of correction Again, that we often receive as correction, we can measure it to the word to say that, yes, this, in fact, is a word from sourced in heaven. So the theme in Romans is sin, salvation, growth, sovereignty, and service. And these things are laid out in such a way that we can find a lot of clarity for right living. The issue in Romans 14 is freedom must be guided by love as we build each other up. True freedom is this. Freedom is not what I'm experientially free to go do and experience in life because of money or relationships or opportunities that come by way of uh, a blessing. But, but true freedom for, for me and, and my understanding is being freed up, being completely uh, at liberty to be kingdom-minded and be a person that affects people for the glory of God regardless of their response. See, we want people to conform and agree to what our agenda might be because sometimes we feel spiritual and purposed, but we do it for the wrong reason. And this is what is unpacked a bit here in Romans 14. So the true freedom is not what you're free to go do. It's what you're free not to do. For years as a youth pastor, I encourage kids as they go off to college to make sure that no substance, no person, or no emotion guides your behavior. And that's true freedom, where you're walking on a foundation that says, 
I have a purpose for your life. You are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, God's special possession. When we really live into that, when we buy that at a heart level, it transforms the way we think, the way we respond to conflict, and the way we engage a broken world with a kingdom purpose. So this is a lordship of Jesus Christ, the kingdom power and glory of God. It's guarded heart. It is a conditioned heart. There is real freedom in Christ to be like Christ in discovering God's limitless love. And that often comes in the context of relationship. In this case, in the early church, we see a difference of opinion and we see resistance and uh, judgment and uh, uh, probably resentment. And just a short story about how this uh, has encountered me this week. Earlier in the week, I was in, the mid, in congregational care working with Stan Carter. We, uh, we often deal with first responders and <laughs> crisis-type issues and hospital and, and tragedy and the good and bad news of the church. And it's a real calling and a blessing to, to have that role and, and to be a front-lines uh, person that engages with these things. And just this week, in the midst of quite a bit of chaos that, that broke loose and um, heart-troubling things, I, I get a little text message of, of a, a close friend of mine that says, you know, you, you act like a pretty arrogant middle schooler. <laughs> I, he called me an arrogant middle schooler. And, and I, and I immediate, immediately wanted to lash out and just totally destroy this guy and make him feel what I felt he deserved to feel based on that little, that condemnation-type judgment. Not a discerning judgment, a condemnation judgment. So I, uh, before I totally lashed out, I, I, I tried to get my heart and mind right, and I was able to respond not totally above reproach. <laughs> there's a little, there's a little uh, issue in there that could have been a little nicer, but I did, I did take a look at, you know what? If this is his assessment of me, it's something that I've got to be willing to take a look at. And isn't that true for all of us? When somebody corrects us, we receive that as rejection, and we throw up our defense mechanisms. We project blame, we minimize what might be true, and we, we deflect anything from accessing our heart because we're wounded people. We have guarded hearts. But the well-kept heart is the one that is able to respond with peace and grace and, and love and truth. And so the project not yet completed, but I did reach back out to him and I let him know that I loved him. I cared about his perspective and I'm willing to take an honest look at his claim. And I'm willing to to say, you know what? There's something there that I do need to self-assess and analyze for me. What then is the root work if that holds some truth, which it certainly does for all of us, then I I need to be willing to create some space to go a little bit deeper and figure out why would he come with that. The middle school part, I don't know. I look like my age. <laughs> but, you know, the, uh, the, the judgment piece is something i got to take a look at and I've got to be real about. So in Philippians 4.8, again, those with a well-kept heart are prepared to respond to situations in life in ways that are good and right. So if, in fact, I do have a well-kept heart, which most of the time I don't, but if we are willing to uh, respond in such a way that is godly and not self-centered and not self-focused, 
I'm going to read just some scripture here in Philippians 4. Many of you have heard this verse, but Philippians 4, starting in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers... Whatever is pure, true, honorable, noble, lovely, commendable, excellent, if anything praiseworthy, think about such things which you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So what is, what is our thought life? What does our, our, our self-talk look like? And does it look like things that the word of God says, or does it look like things that are judgmental and critical that place us above another? So love keeps no record of wrong, and they'll pull an overhead up here that is really the, the launch point for what freedom must be guided by love as we build each other up in faith, being sensitive to those who are weak. This is the focus of the text in 14, a love that builds up, a love that contributes to the betterment of the other, a love that encourages faith, but doesn't condemn, doesn't overly emphasize the wrong things, but rather employs unity and works towards that goal. The structure in Romans 1 through 4, don't judge others who belong to God. 5 through 9, live to the glory of Christ the Lord. 10 through 12, do not judge, it is God who will judge us all. And 13, they have it written a bit differently up here, but limit your liberty for the sake of the kingdom. Don't be a stumbling block, be a stepping stone. The Old Testament background and context of the Jewish and Gentile coming together in the church in Rome. In Leviticus 11, God gave the Israelites a detailed instruction about what they should eat so they might be set apart and consecrated as his people. Observance of of the Sabbath and a, was a series of also a series of feasts in order to commemorate the, their rescue from Egypt. These things became the distinguishing factors of the Jews from the surrounding people group. The Sabbath, the 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 spiritual disciplines and practices, the the uh, the feasts that were ongoing set them apart as a different people. And you were able to indicate who they were among various tribes as the Israelites. So as the, as the Gentiles and the Israelites were coming together as the Christian church in Rome, this new covenant was introduced um, early on through Mark 7, starting in verse 14. Jesus declares that all food is clean. In Mark three twenty-seven, he is the Lord of the Sabbath. So here they're trying to understand historically, which means uh, uh, handed down through time by way of culture, they're trying to understand their cultural norms were being resisted by this new way of thought that is, that is uh, claimed to have been from the Lord, God's purpose for them. So they were met with this cultural and historical resistance that said, I don't know about this. They're trying to tell me all of these hundreds of years of tradition and practice are now being challenged by this Christ. So 
the new covenant is something that forces each of us to consider what is our ultimate human destiny. Where are we going in eternity? What are we doing now to recognize the blood covenant that, is, that we are invited to receive into our hearts as a transformative love, recognizing that Christ died for you, he rose from the dead, and he's coming back. And these are questions that carry eternal significance. And culture wants to minimize these things, and we want to minimize these things as we go through life and things come against us. We want to offset what that really is calling us to be, what is calling us to conform to, and how are we living in such a way that we bring glory to God. In 2 Corinthians 2.14, it speaks of the, the, the kingdom triumph, and, and, and Jesus says, uh, uh, Thanks be to God who always leads us in a triumphal procession in Christ, and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of knowledge of him, that we are part of the kingdom triumph, that we as believers in Christ Make a decision to surrender. Make a decision to have a humble heart and make a decision to repent and live unto him a selfless life, a life of a reflection of his good doing in us. So in one through four, do not judge others who belong to God. These issues were secondary and did not threaten salvation. Paul's not calling for tolerance in this case, but equality in Christ. The world that we live in today speaks much of tolerance and allowing things to invade our traditions, our church traditions, our biblical foundation, our understanding of the one true God, and people are offended by that. And we don't want to be apologetic about a transformative love, a love that carries eternal significance. Set, a, set, uh, set in God or apart from God eternally. So why would we bow down and allow the world to determine what we believe and how much we can believe that in the public eye? Why would we be ashamed to walk in freedom and purpose that God died for us that we might? In verse 1, Paul makes it clear that the weaker brother is to be received into the fellowship. I'm not a Greek scholar like Dr. Bruce, but I did look up the Greek translation here, and it says that the, the brother, the, the, the less mature brother, is to be received into the heart of the church, not just received as, hey, go over there and sit down, we'll get with you in a minute, <laughs> but received into the heart of the church and received into the heart of the fellowship, being part of, unified into the mind, the thoughts, the emotions, the the purpose of the church together as a whole. In verse 3, let no one who eats despise the one who abstains. Love one another with brotherly affection is what we're reminded of in verse 12.10 of Romans. Outdo one another in showing honor. So regardless of what a person's decision is, we can love them right where they are, even if it's a decision that is... um, uh, not the greatest in, in nature. Verse 4, Who are you to pass judgment on another servant? It is before his master that he stands or falls. Before God, we are to live our lives and act according to our conscience. 
verses 5 through 9 are really the emphasis of what I want to speak to this morning. Acting according to our conscience. Live to the glory of Christ the Lord. Unity in this case, and don't miss this, is not uniformity. Unity is essential since the tie that bonds is love, not law. So the non-essentials of the, the doctrine of the early church and now were things that didn't represent salvation, that weren't gospel emphasized around gospel truth. So secondary issues in the church that don't really carry uh, eternal significance. They matter, but they don't matter enough to lose a ton of stress and sleep and anxiety over. So unity was the emphasis in this text. Paul was encouraging this church to be unified, to be one in spirit and purpose. So the Lordship of Christ unites believers. Unity is not just happens when, what, when we agree. Unity is really what happens after we disagree. Can we come together after the fact and be unified? Can we receive correction as rejection and then go away and process a word of, of confrontation and own something in our hearts and come back and repent? And even if there's not a lot of truth that, that rings true for us as we uh, seek the counsel of another Christian brother or sister or the word of God or prayer, but Paul reminds us that my conscience confirms it. So conscience is an important thing. And unity is what happens after we disagree. Can we come behind an issue and be reconciled and be unified and be together after the fact, even when we argue? Husband and wife, friend in the neighborhood, brother or sister in the church, can we be unified and look beyond circumstances to um, understand that we all have our best interests in mind when we're surrendered? Father-son relationship, you guys have heard about mine Um, there were a number of years that I couldn't even look my dad in the face because of the shame that I carried, the shame, the guilt, the self-condemnation, the destructive life that I lived. But unity was always my dad's purpose, and he was always faithful in that, as was my mom. So what is our part in unity? The conscience, in verse 5, each one should be convicted in his own mind. The conscience is this, an internal rational capacity that bears witness to our value system. An internal, rational capacity that bears witness to our value system. We can't outrun our conscience. Sometimes we do things that are in the gray area of more, more moralistic issues, and sometimes we, we do things that are selfish in nature and we, we don't really understand our motive, and sometimes we look onto the life of someone else with an assessment and an opinion, but we can't outrun our conscience. Pretty quickly as believers or even as those created by God on the search for faith, understand intrinsically what is God's purpose for me. And we know pretty quickly, a mom's intuition we, that, that knows, you know what, yes, no. And it's not really up for debate. And we can't outrun that. So this is key. Our feelings, our thoughts, our psychological conditions, and our social context affect our heart our will, and out of the heart comes attitude and actions. So what is it that you, you, what are your reoccurring feelings and thoughts? What are your psychological conditions and what are your social contexts that further this gospel of peace in you? 
And how are you affecting these broken systems that we live in? How are you affecting them with the truth and a word that, that sets people free, a word that is sourced in heaven? The word and the spirit of Christ enters our lives, evoking faith in Christ, which reestablishes communion with God. Is the word of God entering your heart? Is the spirit of God invited to affect how you feel, how you think, how you engage? Are you allowing the Holy Spirit to give you the confidence to walk into what could be potential rejection? And do you walk in with power and purpose that goes beyond your fear of failure or someone's opinion of you? In Colossians 1, all things were created through him, for him, and all things hold together in him. If we truly believe this, there is liberation, there is hope, and there is purpose on our lives that all things hold together for him and were created for him. In verses 10 through 12, do not judge, it is God who will judge us all. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Criticism violates the law of love. It's so easy to sit back and be a critical person that holds himself above another based on doctrine or theology or perceived right living and looking on to the life of another saying, if you just get here, we'll meet you right there and love you in that place. But the way that God walked the streets, Jesus Christ, the the incarnate ministry of Christ in the flesh, he walked into the broken world. He walked into those who were broken and, and lost. And he loved them right where they were. And we should do the same. It is presumptuous to think or to criticize others if we turn the searchlight onto our own hearts. We will find plenty to humble ourselves before the Lord. So as we look out with an analytical perspective on what lines up and what does not, we, f- we lose sight of that reality that when we stand before the Lord, we're going to have plenty to account for. So humbly, we should engage people of all realities, understanding that the human struggle is tough and it's lonely. And the church is critical in making sure that people walk into the fullness of God's purpose for them. Every work <clears throat> has been brought into judgment, Second Corinthians 5.10, and reward or loss will be accounted to us as we stand before the judgment seat, Second Timothy 4.8. Everything we do, we will give account for. The stepping stone or stumbling block in 13 through 23, we're either furthering the gospel or we're hindering the fullness of God's love taking root in the lives of ourselves and others. Are we a stepping stone for a person's ministry? Are we a stepping stone for a person's full potential? Or are we a stumbling block because we've emphasized some minor issue that they can't get past, be it theological or behavioral? Have we emphasized the wrong thing and therefore a person is stuck because maybe they're mad at God? We see it all the time. Something tragic happens and a person develops anger and resentment towards God and they're uninterested in the things of faith, so they walk away. And maybe our part as believers is, well, if that's your If that's your perspective, I don't really know how to deal with that because I'm not an apologist and I don't know how to enter into that. So I'll just try to show love to you and hopefully that'll affect you for change. Though that's good, 
I assure you that God has more for you in that engagement. A community of believers is designed to live interdependently as one body. Intergenerationally is the new church study trend, intergenerational worship, intergenerational uh, missions and service and uh, works in the church of coming together as of people from different um, generations and different uh, worlds and being unified, understanding that each of us has something to offer. Each of us has something to contribute for the work of the ministry, to further the mission of Church of the Apostles, to <clears throat> reach the loss. Oh my gosh. Equip, equip the, help me, TJ, bail me out. We're the work of the ministry. What a, what a terrible thing to fail over, God. How do I further that? If, you know, but of course, I know the mission. I just I stumped myself because I didn't write it in the notes. But to uh, reach the lost and equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Each of us is invited to labor in that and to be a part of it. There is a danger that disagreements will divide what God has brought together. And this was the issue in Romans 14 that... Um, the, what God has brought together, what God intended for the early church, minor disagreements set apart. And again, um, unity was not the emphasis that Paul was speak. He was, in fact, speaking to uniformity and making sure that everybody lined up with the sacred traditions or the practices of the church that the early church was emphasizing, the Jewish people. But God, uh, Paul was emphasizing that unity was critical. It was then and it is now for us to understand and grow as believers. The truth is, each of us should do what we are convinced before God is right. The priorities of God's kingdom are far more important than disagreements. In verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is before us. The prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If we embody a kingdom ethic, if we embody a kingdom purpose, then we are surrendered and we are intentional to be unified and look beyond our own agenda, making sure that the needs of the other are met in such a way that is restorative and hopeful and based in the gospel of truth, love, and peace. There is hope in these things. Do we put God's concern before our own? If God works to create unity, then we should do nothing to tear it down. We, spent, we should be spending time and energy building each other up in mutual faith. A short story in conclusion that I, I want to tell of um, just an unexpected um, happening of, of God's work here in this church Years ago, I worked in the uh, STS student ministry department, and um, having come out of recovery myself, I, I, I've, by default, by God's doing, He's placed me a, 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 on the front lines of recovery work and being, uh, doing interventions and um, visiting people who are afflicted. And in this case, one of our church members asked me about six years ago, "Would you go visit my daughter um, and, and help her? She's struggling with." heroin addiction. And I said, yeah, absolutely will. And my first visit with this young lady was at Cobb County Jail. And I went in and did a chaplain visit. 
and I sat with this this girl by way of phone, a phone interview, and I read the word, and I told her what God says about her, and I told her that she has a life to live, not to live unto herself, to place herself on the on the seat, the throne seat of her life, but to surrender and come to terms with this debilitating addiction that will certainly take her life. Well, through the course of um, the next several years, she gradually, she always believed in God. So let's just, for, for a minute, for the sake of the text, just understand her weakness in faith and my certainty in faith as a transformed life to walk in, not as a stronger brother in terms of behavior, but the stronger in brother in terms of understanding God's mercy on me and the humility and uh, the grace and the mercy that God has imparted in my life totally undeserved, ongoing every day. And I stood before her and I shared this faith and the, the, the statistics of overcoming opiate addiction are mind-boggling and very uncertain. And, you know, it's, it's just troubling. And, and some of you might have people in your family or neighborhood that struggle with this, but the odds are against that individual. So as she began to internalize the truth and embody her faith and walk this into a broken world, she would be reconciled with her daughter, her dad, her purpose in life. And through ongoing conversation, most of which was by phone, I wouldn't go meet with this this girl and try to disciple her, but I would stay in her life. And by God's doing, he would create an opportunity for her to take recovery classes and become a certified addictions counselor of which she's currently engaged. Um, in February, God gave me the blessing and opportunity to, together with my wife, do premarital counseling with her and her husband-to-be. This is a homegrown girl. Um, and I wish I could bring her picture up, but I ran out of time. Um, but I did have the opportunity to, in fact, officiate her wedding, which was my first wedding just uh, two months ago. So so God's honor, his kingdom, and his purpose should take precedence over everything. Not our judgment, not our perception of what we should emphasize over the truth and the word of God, but his, his his purpose should take precedence over all things. And when we recognize that need in our lives and we recognize that need in a broken world, these things come together and we're able to labor towards the goodness and the qualities that God created us for. Again, the entire Bible is infused with the gospel. Instead of hearing about God throughout the week, Read the word and hear from God. Your part in the blessing of having a place in the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. My prayer is that you will engage that with power and purpose, and that in that you would be a transformed life. May the Lord bless you and keep you in Jesus' name.